let me let me tell you that. And when I was chatted to him on the phone a few months back, he there was an article which I found on the internet from the London Telegraph, which described it was like about 2003 or something, described him as the uh, smartest man in the army. And I mentioned to him that we had a regular participant in various events over the years, um, uh, David Kilcullen, in articles about him, also described him as the smartest man in the army. So maybe we'll have officers at 10 paces or something. So please welcome Tom Simpson. Well, Greg, thank you very much for that warm introduction, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, so actually, this uh, that unexpected introduction touches on something I will talk about, which is the surprising power of private corporations in the digital age. And uh, so this article came out about me in the Daily Telegraph in about 2002, 2003, just as Google began to exist. Two or three years earlier, disappeared in the mists of, of, uh, of time, but, um, but it keeps on following me around. So anyway, so what I'm here to talk about tonight is um, the relationship between liberty and security and where governments should draw that line in terms of surveillance. And I've got some developed thoughts about that, which I'll try and share with you. And I want to more speculatively move on to think about the role of private corporations. And uh, in some ways, the, the post-Snowden debate has um, begun to drop off the agenda. There's plenty of other stuff that people are worried about in Britain, where I come from, Brexit is uh, dominating the headlines, obviously, and uh, you know what the world makes of Donald Trump's presidency is dominating the headlines. So there's plenty of other stuff, and it feels like legislatures have made their peace. But I think there are some deeper themes here which are worth exploring in uh, greater depth. So I just bit of biography. I started thinking about this uh, about three or four years ago when one of the UK inquiries in the wake of the Snowden revelations started to look at what the role of GCHQ ought to be. And I was invited to contribute to that inquiry and I felt like I ought to have an opinion. Um, you, I don't know if you sometimes find yourself in that situation. <laughs> and uh, I, because of my military background, I was prepared to come to the view that this was probably uh, the mass surveillance of the population by the government was probably a necessary and proportionate uh, power which the government needed to keep the country safe. And the security services are doing a difficult and usually invisible uh, job. And slightly to my own surprise, as I began to think about it, I've come to the view that the issues are more complex uh, and actually that I've come down on the side that mass surveillance by the government uh, is not something that the government should be doing. So, uh, firstly, I'm a, I'm a philosopher by background, uh, so I have the, uh, the desire, the inbuilt desire to try and get things right. Uh, and I'm not a politician, so I'm also freed from the constraint of, uh, of kind of worrying about how my words will be received. So I sort of offer what, what I say here in that spirit of... Um, of uh, open discussion to try and get things right. And I recognise there's two sides on this. It's quite a difficult matter of judgment. OK. So what is mass surveillance, this term that I've been using? Just to give an intuitive way of thinking about it, imagine policing uh, as a fishing exercise. You're trying to catch, catch the bad folks who are doing bad things. And you can either fish with a net or you can fish with a hook. And fishing with a hook is when you're responding to individuals who are doing bad things and you're trying to pull them out 
and then use the apparatus of the courts and uh, uh, the prison system to, to make sure they're not a danger. And fishing with a net is when you're just catching everything that comes and then out of everything that comes you're picking out the things that matter to you. And intuitively you can see there's a distinction between there and it seems to me characteristic of a free society that the way we do intelligence and the way we do policing is with a hook and not with a net. We do targeted surveillance, not mass surveillance. So if you need to find out about someone and they're sending letters, you get the letter off the postal line and you steam open that letter. What you don't do is steam open everyone's letters as they come through to find the one that you want. And what Snowden's revelation showed was that uh, the NSA and, and GCHQ in particular had hacked the internet and were engaged in mass surveillance. So 85 to 90% of internet traffic goes through um, uh, the UK and the US, and by plugging into these key nodal points, uh, the NSA and GCHQ were able to extract uh, if that proportion of internet traffic. And they were retaining the content of communication, so things like telephone calls, if, if you're doing it over the internet, and also through conventional means, uh, or the content of your email, retaining that for three days, and retaining the uh, uh, the metadata, so I was instructed by my Aussie colleagues to use the word data, forgive me if I lapse into data at intervals. Um, the metadata was, um, was retained for 30 days, and the reason it was only 30 days is not because of any legislative requirement, it was because of capacity. Okay, so there's vast quantities. So if, if they could store more, they would, was the, uh, was the point. And what this allows is pattern recognition. Uh, uh, sorry, correction. What this allows is, tr is network analysis, so that when someone, you've got someone of interest, you can then track through who they're communicating with, and you can build up uh, an analysis of the terrorist cells in particular that, uh, that people are working with. And obviously the context in a wide sense is 9-11 and Islamist terrorism, and there's fast-moving security threats, um, which many countries internationally are facing. Okay, so that's the broad context. How does the argument then go? So the standard argument um, goes like this. The civil liberties perspective will say, we have rights to privacy. The state cannot override our rights to privacy without due cause. And then the claim is there's no due cause here which justifies this degree of mass surveillance. That's the kind of the, the starting salvo, if you like, in the debate. And then the reply comes back from the other side. Well, look, rights are always um, prima facie. They're kind of at first blush only. And rights can always be overridden when there are competing or more significant rights. And what we face here is a clash of rights. There's rights to privacy that individuals hold, and there's rights to bodily integrity, which other individuals, and in fact all of us, hold. And the right to bodily integrity of not being attacked, of living, of living without fear, these rights are more significant than the rights to privacy, and therefore they're permissibly overridden. And then usually the claim will say something like, the situation has changed since 9-11. We security agencies tell you 
that if we didn't do this, then there'd be many more people dying. And so I don't know what it's like in the Australian context, in the UK context, about every six months the head of uh, MI5, the Internal Security Service, or GCHQ, stands up and says, we've foiled ten plots in the last six months. And, uh, and there's, there's always this dilemma, and sort of most of the country... Believes, uh, 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 believes the head and uh, there's a portion of the country who think, oh, well, you're probably exaggerating to make the case. And there's a sort of s- stasis and you can kind of never get past because if the state is to have secrets, then, some, then it can't all be publicly disclosed. And there's a kind of end point to there. OK. And there's a more subtle version of this argument. So the, the subtler version uh, says this. What it is for something to be private is defined by a community or by a society. So think about um, the rights of information that uh, you or I might have in relation to each other. So if, uh, when I walk out of here and walk down the street, if you're just happen- happening to go in the same direction as me, there's no right to privacy that's been violated by that. You know, we're... It's public space, it's a public thoroughfare, anyone can go where they want. When I get to the front door of the hotel, if I, and I go through there, if you sort of follow me in, okay, that begins to, it's still public space of a kind, but there are slightly different norms operating. And uh, when I close the door of my hotel room, if you kind of come in through the window, right, there's a privacy violation. Um, and, uh, but the point is the norms of where we draw the line are quite, quite subtle and quite variegated, and you can see how different cultures you might draw the line in, uh, in different places. So Mark Zuckerberg, um, CEO of Facebook, has said, uh, the social norm of privacy has evolved over time. And people say things like, the I generation are just relaxed about privacy. I mean, I'm already fuddy-duddy, mm-hmm. late 30s, and I'm sort of, the fact that I'm worried about privacy just says more about me than it does about culture. It's more like, you know, internet communication is more like sending a postcard than it is about sending a letter. It's just, if you send a postcard, you should just expect what you put on there to be read. Okay, so these are the two arguments that are normally espoused, and I want to uh, question both of them. So the first argument, effectively what we've got going on here is a, is a picture of, or let me try and paint it in in pictorial terms, we've got certain liberties on one side which protect our individual freedoms to live in particular ways. And we've got security measures on this side which make it possible. And as the risk changes, that will push the... uh, So if we continue risk... As the risk changes, we need stronger security measures to cope with what's going on. And that's requ- we need to accept that in order to make sure that we have the liberties that count for us, namely life. That, so we're in this constant challenge. As the risk rises, security measures rise, we need to sacrifice liberties in order to do that. So we're always engaged in this process of balancing the security measures that are appropriate for the... Um, uh, balancing the security measures and therefore the liberties that come with that in relation to the risk, okay? Does that make sense? Sorry, so let me recalibrate. So risk here, liberty and security. So where we set the line has got to be sensitive to where the risk goes. Now, that's clearly a reasonable thing to do. 
But one of the implications of that is that as the risk rises and rises, there's theoretically no limit to the security measures that will become appropriate to deal with it. Can you see that? So if we have, um, uh, as things get worse and worse on the, on the threat side, the security measures become increasingly more invasive. And at that point, I begin to question it, and I begin to think, well, what is the principal stopping point beyond which we're not going to go? So torture, for instance, is torture a permissible security measure that we'll introduce in order to confront the risk that we face, and, uh, and therefore we're going to sacrifice some liberties. Uh, mass incarceration, mass imprisonment without trial. What are, the, what are the stopping points going to be which mean that whatever the raise in risk, we're, we're going to refuse to sacrifice those liberties? So th there may well be some people here, and I, I sort of, you know, as a military man, I understand the pressure to it, and certainly my own community in the past like torture was a very actively considered and quite possibly exercised um, power which people thought was necessary to cope with the security threat. But I'm very hesitant about going there. It seems to me we've got to have some way of saying there are some things beyond which we're not, we're just not going to go there. And we're going to accept the corresponding rise in security and, and insecurity and threat as a consequence of not doing this. And the question is, how do we make sense of this idea of what is it that we're not going to do? So let me just try and sort of pull together that strand of thought. This balancing metaphor is a very natural and intuitive way of making sense of what's going on. But what it doesn't capture is the idea that there are some liberties some freedoms, some ways of living that matter to us in ways that are in some sense more important than the corresponding rise of, uh, of, of insecurity. And this is, it, so this is quite a sort of, um, so let me put the million dollar question, which uh, when we come to questions, I'll, I'll, you can ask me and I won't give the answer. So the million dollar question is, how many lives are we as a society prepared to lose in expectation, kind of predicting in, in anticipation rises in threat, in order to protect certain kinds of civil liberties? And what are those liberties that we should be um, uh, deciding to retain? Okay, so that's the million dollar question. Let me try and give a way of thinking about, so I'm going to move on to the second argument, which also gives us an answer to this first line of thinking that I've been trying to flesh out. So the task is to explain why some freedoms matter more and why we'll accept risk uh, in other areas in order to retain these freedoms. And I want to propose that a, um, a distinctively conservative approach in this context uh, is worth considering very seriously. And let me say what I mean by conservatism in this uh, situation. So Samuel Huntingdon, um, many of you will know from the Clash of Civilizations uh, thesis, uh, he describes conservatism this way. Conservatism is not just the absence of change. 
It is the articulate, systematic, theoretical resistance to change. Okay, so uh, that's uh, that's where we're going. <laughs> Deliberate refusal to change. I come from Oxford. This is part of the course here, and. Uh, um, why is it that we might be in principle not deciding never to change? Clearly, you know, it's a trope of conservative thought that reform is, uh, is, 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 is often necessary to preserve what you, what you love. Um, but why is it there's a sort of principled hesitation about change? Well, here's one reason, and you find it in, uh, uh, in Burke, Kevin Burke. Um, so as Burke describes it, government is not an exercise in theoretical abstraction but, quote, of practical wisdom which supersedes theoretic science. And in the same way that we think of one of the values of democracy is uh, in actually a very similar way to the market, they both pool lots of individuals' private judgment and come up with an aggregated judgment that is more powerful than any single individual's possible judgments by themselves. You're familiar with the wisdom of crowds, idea. Okay, so it looks like democracy is a kind of wisdom of crowds function and the market, the Hayekian idea about the pooling of information, uh, market says inherited norms achieve the same function through time rather than across a particular generation. So inherited norms which societies, which we, which we receive from our forebears which are judgments about, in particular, the role of government and the proper scope of government, these inherited norms carry the wisdom of prior generations. And in a sense, they're, kind, they're like conventions. They're, prior generations could have drawn the line in different places, but these are the lines which, in the past, have been seen to work. And I think this is what says something to that uh, Mark Zuckerberg idea that social norms have evolved over time. So he's definitely right, they have evolved over time. I'm a little bit sceptical about uh, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> making that point because he has uh, personally benefited very greatly from having changed those norms, <laughs> namely privacy by exception and publicity by default. I mean, that's his, that's his operating business model. Um, and uh, the question that we face as, as a society is where do we think those norms should be? And do we have reason to change the norms that we have inherited? And uh, let me just um, give a bit of an historical uh, parallel here. So um, the British Postal Service got going during the Civil War uh, back in the 1640s, 1650s, and Cromwell was very effective at uh, using this. So there was, there was a central office in London and uh, the Spymaster General's Department run by Samuel Morland. Uh, everything would come in, you know, it worked overnight, so you get the post, would come into the central office at 10 o'clock. They'd steam it all open, kind of read everything, reseal it, send it off again. And uh, Samuel Morland defended this, Quotes, a skillful prince ought to make a watchtower of his general post office and there place such careful sentinels as that by their care and diligence he may have a constant view of all that passes. By the frequent inspection of letters, a king soon knows the temper of all his principal and active subjects. And uh, uh, Edward Arden, the secretary to the Bishop of Durham, um, who was personally uninvolved in the politics of the day. You know, I know politics is getting a bit more contentious, but we're not yet killing each other. Long may that continue. Uh, he wrote, he feared to write much to one of his correspondents, quotes, for letters are opened 
and nothing is certain. Okay, So here we've got a potential convention. I mean, it could have been the convention that anything you send by post was open to public view. It could have been... It could have been that every letter was just like a postcard. You just expect that everything is open to view to everyone all the time. But really, I mean, I think you'll agree there's social value in the convention being that letters are private. And so for any one kind of mode of communication or boundary line in society, we, could, we can accept sacrifice there on privacy but the consequence of doing so is that the zone of life which individuals and civil society controls, as opposed to the government, as opposed to being public space, diminishes. And therefore, we have a principled reason to resist the encroachment uh, of surveillance. So, so it, it seems to me that what's really going on here is that what we've got is a boundary line between government, the rightful exercise of government, and between private individuals and civil society. And that boundary has been shifted, I mean, initially without due process and subsequently with the legislative proposals that have taken place with due process. But nonetheless, there's been an expansion of government's reach into our lives. And I suggest that the conservative way of thinking about things, the inherited norms, gives us reason to be cautious about that and indeed reason to reject that. Okay, so uh, I've lost that argument in the legislatures. <laughs> uh, most of them have come to different views. Um, the pressing issue which we are going to face over the coming years is the role of private surveillance. So this is what I'm talking about here is surveillance as a business model. Um, and the key participants in this marketplace are Google, Facebook and Amazon and to some extent uh, Apple. And the basic trade here is uh, I individually give them information and they, as, as companies, give us free tailored services and also adverts. Um, and uh, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, like, there's just no shortage of stuff to be scared about here. Uh, so this is, this is from the horse's mouth. Uh, Quotes, we don't need you to type at all. We know where you've been. We can more or less know what you're thinking about. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> For any of you, if you have a think about the consequences, consequences of public revelation of your Google search history and your browsing history, it's a kind of, uh, it's like a secular vision of the last judgment, as far as I can see. You know, all your secrets are laid bare for public view. And uh, obviously, there's plenty of people who don't like this. And so they will cast the debate here, the trade-off, as one of privacy versus efficiency. But if you're on the sort of sceptical side, as I think I'm finding myself now, uh, it's much harder to make the argument here, right? So in the public case, government just makes laws and then does what it wants. And we can vote on the process, you know, through our voting, we can input into the process. Uh, but fundamentally, it's an exercise of government's coercive power, which it rightly has, uh, but is, is not something that I as a private individual have any uh, exercise over. But I do have agency, I do have autonomy in this context, because I can choose whether to use Gmail. You know, I can choose whether to go shopping on Amazon. And so the people who come down on the other side in this context have a much easier case to make. I've just signed the end user license agreement. And as a result of doing so, I waive my rights to privacy. My rights to privacy are no longer broken. 
because I've freely I've let you into the hotel room in that uh, in that context. What's not to like about this? Well, so there are two points of contention. So I think a shallow response is to question whether informed consent has really been given here. So I think that's a really valid concern, but I think it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. More seriously, there are plenty of transactions in the marketplace which meet the conditions of consent and which also meet, uh, in economic terms, uh, their Pareto improvements, so both parties are made better off as a result of that, and for which we also think that there's a proper role for regulation and intervention by government. And the obvious example here is monopolies. So monopolies, uh, all the customers who, who buy per purchase services or goods from a monopoly do so consensually. They pay the price, which shows they think it's worth it for them individually. And uh, obviously, the company thinks it's worth it at that price because otherwise they wouldn't be selling it. And yet, even with that consent, even with that Pareto improvement, we still think that it's right that there be controls placed on companies in this context. And this, I think, is what's happening in this context here as well. So there are externalities to the transaction which are not captured by the price and which uh, in a competitive part of the role of competition policy is to change the price of the transaction so that those externalities are captured. Now, uh, so what are the externalities? Uh, the externalities are colossal asymmetries of bargaining power uh, between these major platforms and um, uh, and consumers and businesses who are selling through them. So just to make this salient, Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of the Guardian newspaper in uh, in the UK, um, speaking at the school where I worked recently, and um, so the Guardian have really embraced digital. They've really gone digital in a big way, and they're one of the two big online sources for news, certainly in the UK, and I, I think they're one of the major players internationally. And um, uh, they're still hemorrhaging income, you know, it's a broken business model. And the reason they're hemorrhaging income is because they can't make the money on advertising that's needed to keep them going. And the reason they can't make the money is because the ratio of income, they have Google AdWords, is split 30 to 1. So for every £31 that Google raises in revenue from the people who pay for the advertising to be hosted, Google takes 30 and Guardian takes one. Okay, right. That is a consequence of asymmetric bargaining power. And uh, I read recently of another example from 2009. The editor of the Dallas Morning News was in conversation with Amazon uh, to try and get Amazon to host, effectively through Kindle, um, the Dallas Morning News. And um, uh, he didn't go with the deal. Amazon wanted a 70-30 split of the subscription revenue. So 70, they wanted to take 70% for providing the, the distribution service and 30% for the content providers. And uh, I can only think, you know, that's eight years ago now, and uh, I'd expect Amazon would be a bit more ambitious on the, <laughs> on the split. So the externalities we're seeing in these marketplaces are the same as those created 
by monopolies. There's lots of consumer choice, uh, there's excess costs, and most fundamentally there's agglomerations of money and power. And the question is what to do about it. So I'll just very, uh, very quickly close with that. Um, so these platforms are natural monopolies. Um, they are in the same way that uh, the rail, rail tracks are a natural monopoly. There's returns for having one provider of the rail tracks that everyone uses. So there's returns on scale for having centralized forums, which everyone comes through to get the relevant service. And so the market will always tend towards unification uh, in these contexts. And this is what gives the, the internet its winner-takes-all character. And so I think it's a mistake in this context. I think it's a mistake to nationalize you know, for all the familiar uh, arguments there. And I think it's a mistake to, pro uh, to break up in this context as well, because efficiency for the consumer does depend on there being single operators for um, uh, who, are, who are working in this space and through the economies of scale uh, providing better services than would otherwise be the case. But I think, so uh, there is, just to use an analogy, there is a case for t much tighter regulation than we have right now, right now, um, and that the process should be, say, so that a footballing anal analogy. Do you know the difference between zonal defence or man-to-man -man marking? So, in a, in a <laughs> so in soccer, you know, you've got four defenders at the back, and uh, they can either kind of mark their segments of the pitch, or what you can do is each defender can take an opposing striker and run around with them and try and make sure that striker doesn't doesn't get that. And uh, I think these natural monopolies lend themselves very effectively to the kind of second, the sort of man-to-man -man marking model. And it's a very it's a difficult one to get right, um, but it's a very important one to get right. So uh, we'll have regulators for gas and electricity markets, for rail markets, and for communications markets, where you're wanting to enable private enterprise to do what it does really well and also prevent the abuse of monopolistic power that can come uh, with that. And it's a, as always, it's a, it's a tricky line uh, to tread. Okay, so let, let me just sum up. What I've been trying to say here is that I think the standard privacy versus, privacy versus security or privacy versus efficiency debate is a very difficult, that debate just runs into stasis very quickly. And it runs into stasis for quite clear reasons because it fails to articulate a reason for why there'd be zones of life which we think ought to be protected, ought to be out of government control, uh, or, or ought to be protected in the private case, the abuse of that power. And instead, by thinking about what the inherited baselines, the inherited norms are which we have, this gives us a way to think about what the values are that are protected by these norms and why we should be resistant about handing over increasing areas of our life to governmental surveillance and to private surveillance. So thank you very much and I look forward to your questions. Yeah, yeah. Remember Alta Vista? That's yep. the one from yeah. And Yahoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what, 
you know, success, I mean, this is the point about not yep. breaking them up as much as anything. Yep. Success was evident, and yep. they, they had the right, the right model. Yep. Is it possible that there'll be another one? Uh, another model or, 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 or competitor. At least as well or better than good. I don't know. Yeah, good. So um, th there's some kind of conflicting things which are going on here. So in terms of the, mon the monopoly, um, whether it's a monopoly or not, in the UK, Google has over 90% of the search market. And I think internationally, it's now at about 80%. So America is where it's actually lagging behind. It's something like 60%, and Bing's got 20 or 25%. So now... So in terms of simple market share, I think there'd be quite a strong case for uh, saying that it is monopolistic. Now, the, the, I think an interesting response to that is, well, it may be longitudinally, the, we don't have too much to worry about. So in 10 years, will Google still dominate search? And um, there's some reasons for being cautious about that. So these tech giants, it's, you know, they do fall. So I'm trying to think of... Uh, uh, sorry? MySpace. MySpace, right. Okay, so back in 2008, that was a serious competitor for Facebook, and it's, ju it's just disappeared. Well, one of the things that's been shared by the current... Um, uh, so, two hesitations. So, firstly, date, uh, the data. Um, the returns to incumbent corporations have been increasing over the last 15 years. So, if you're a dominant market player... 10 years ago, you're actually getting more in terms of your return. So Go I don't know if you saw Google's quarterly figures just again. They again shot up and they just keep that. I mean, they're ferocious competitors. They're very, very good at what they do. And it, the principle behind that is these companies are very good at achieving lock-in. So um, with Apple, you know, if you've bought all your CDs on iTunes, you know, you've just got it all there. To shift to another provider of, of music uh, is going to be costly because you're forgoing your back catalogue. Is that the case in Google? Uh, so it seems like search is going to be a more fluid marketplace. But certainly the dominating advantage that Google have is just the breadth, the volume of data that they have, and the returns on scale that come with data. So in the same way that Procter & Gamble, um, who are the two competitors in the um, washing machine uh, sort of uh, detergent market, you know, the, uh, Procter & Gamble and... Uh, Unilever. Okay, they spend eight billion between them a year on advertising, and it's not because um, they're uh, you know they're desperately competing with each other because they could just in an oligopoly fashion decide to price fix. Uh, but it's they're creating barriers to entry for new entrants into the marketplace that you've got to spend that much on advertising to get in. So structurally, the same is true in in the market for search, the market for email. You've got to have that mass of data to be able to provide a service that is as good as Google. And so there's a lock-in effect that comes, not because of, um, you know, in the same way that there is for the iTunes store, there's a lock-in effect that comes from the quality of the personalized service. And if I may just say so, so with machine learning is the technology that's coming over the horizon, and this effect of returns of scale on data is only going to accentuate as machine learning comes in. So the likelihood that Google in particular will be an incumbent uh, giant in 10 years, I'd, I'd be prepared to bet quite a lot of money on that. And their share price reflects that. Well, when you talk about survivability of corporations, I think of Nokia being knocked off by uh, Apple and um, Lotus123 being knocked off by Excel. But that isn't my question. Um, at the beginning, you talked about the surveillance and how it's becoming more persuasive. Uh, Patrick Poole had an article recently in which he noted that of the recent terrorist attacks, 74% um, of the so-called lone wolves were, quote, known to authorities, unquote, before they launched their attacks. 
uh, basically uh, uh, we have to, I guess if we're thinking of security, we've got to think in terms of, of whether it is a police action or a military action. If it's a police action, police only act after something has happened. If you're fighting a war, then you seek to uh, act to prevent it from occurring in the first case. I'm sorry, this is a long introduction, so I better shut up. But uh, <laughs> um, I'm therefore wondering whether we have to consider and contemplate not whether, you know, not that we should cope with a certain level of casualties, but whether we should, as it were, fight to win and get rid of it altogether, and whether we should reconsider several things like proper profiling. Because to, to surveil everybody is impossible. But do you have to profile to whom you survey? And also, too, you've got to think about um, reducing the threats to society, not by arresting them after they've done their act, but by uh, some form of preventive detention, which has been traditionally this, the, the approach taken. I'll just stop there and hand over to see what your mm. reaction is to that. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Um, just may I very swiftly offer a comment on your comment uh, about Nokia. So Nokia's big mistake was that they uh, thought they were in the handset business, whereas um, uh, the, the, the giants are in the what you might call the platform business. So they're intermediating between other businesses and consumers. And so that's what Google picked up with their, with their marketplaces. So um, obviously there were other mis other mistakes as well. But but the platform kind of linear business distinction gives a principled reason for thinking that there may be lock-in sort of incumbents who dominate. Okay, on the, on the security question, good. So, um, obviously, lo you know, lone wolves are always going to be very difficult to uh, pick up, and we, we don't want to be purely reactive. Okay, so w we want to do as much upstream work, both in terms of intelligence work for threat prevention and also the upstream societal conditions for peace um, sort of question. So like, how is it that we contribute, and from a public perspective, contribute in terms of government to um, uh, sustain a society where people don't feel the need to do these kinds of things? And I, I guess my basic thought is, is a resource constraint is just a mighty factor in any non-totalitarian regime. Um, and I think, so MI6 in the UK have the capacity to follow something like 50 to 60 individuals at any one time, where you have something like 600 on a kind of major threat list. And so you can, you can do the maths in that. In that in right, so you, 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 so you can't track in the sort of tight sense. And then the question is what the permissions are you're going to do that. So I'm certainly, you know, I'm in favor of targeted surveillance. Like that's, that's just obviously the right thing to do. And um, and, that, and that should be where resources are put. Yeah, thank you. Right. Back to the state surveillance. I think the main problem was that it was secretive. It goes back even to the Romans who watched the watchers. What is the transparency requirement to be acceptable? Not a complete mass surveillance, but a major data hole. Sorry, I missed the question just at the end there. What? What is the acceptable level or the trade-off between transparency yeah. and secrecy of the mass surveillance? Okay. So the... the um, good. So two points. Firstly, prior to the Snowden revelations, um, 
I think there was a very significant objection that this kind of, I mean, I hate the term military-industrial complex, but there is a kind of surveillance complex that had grown up. I mean, the NSA has a budget of in excess of 50 billion. I mean, that's bigger than the UK's defence budget. So there is, like, there's an extraordinary amount of resources which, which are around there. Um, so I think there is a big object. Now, people knew about the existence of the NSA, but they didn't know the kind of things that were going on. Now, did... So it, what has been important is the legislative processes that have given a firm legislative and democratic footing for these practices. At what point does knowledge of certain techniques compromise the effectiveness of those techniques? That's a tricky question, and my sense is that that was not a relevant defense. That was an articulated defense, but not a relevant one in this context. And the reason for that is that anyone who's in this game on, on the bad side, on the red side, uh, already knew that they were already paranoid. And so that's why it took so long to get bin Laden, because he was really effective at his security measures. Um, now, should so it seems to me the appropriate line is to be as public as we can about the kinds of measures that are being used by the security agencies without compromising the effectiveness of those actual measures. And so when you look, um, I'm fam most familiar, I'm afraid I'm not very familiar with the Aussie context, but the British context, the, um, uh, the, the, the bill that recently went through, um, was quite specific in terms of the kinds of powers that the security agencies would have. So it was quite specific about uh, recognising GCSU's power to, um, I mean, effectively uh, get someone's laptop and tinker with it and put, put some system in place that is going to capture what's going like a screen capture bit of software. You know, they were very specific about the kinds of levels of things, but they took a view that this was compatible with, with effectiveness. Thank you for your comments. I was minded to the words of Benjamin Franklin as you um, made your earlier comments, but is not part of the, the challenge the, the framing of the problem in that it's a trade-off between security and liberty? Um, because it implies that you can't achieve both at the same time. But doesn't it also, having the state created and embedded the infrastructure, allow them to reframe and redefine the risk to perhaps, at some point, thought crime or tax crime or any other threat it may perceive and ex extend the use of um, surveillance and other uh, liberty-diminishing techniques. Go on, so is there a particular kind of um, way things might go that you're, uh, you know, in a dystopian world worried about? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess... Um, I, I guess, so one of, one of the take <clears throat> excuse me, one of the take-homes I've been trying to drive at is that if we're simply kind of like try, one way of thinking about this is try, we're trying to count the amount of freedoms that we have or count the amount of liberties that we have. And you're absolutely right. The, on that, that is the dominating view. And on that view, a, a trade-off between liberty and security doesn't aptly describe what's going on. What, we, what the description is, what are the measures that we need to take which most, uh, which give us the most freedoms. And I've been trying to say, I, I still want to resist, I still want to resist that. Yeah, uh, so, so tax crime. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, in London, uh, uh, one of the councils, cause often the things that really get worrying happen at the council level rather than at the national level because um, people are sort of taking the initiative and um, don't 
there's less scrutiny. So one of the things they were doing was uh, putting chips at the bottom of your recycling bin to make sure that you put out enough, enough but not too much recycling uh, every, every week. And this would then, you know, the machine learning algorithms are very effective at picking up on this. And if you are, so the particular use for this was um, uh, housing for illegal, illegal housing for illegal immigrants. So a lot of people would convert their garages and put sort of 15 bunk beds in there. And, uh, you know, you can then see if there's a spike of, you know, if, if it's a two-bedroom house and there's just this lot more rubbish coming out. So it's a kind of totally positive purpose, but quite a, quite a pernicious uh, extension. Yeah, so we just need to be careful and uh, <laughs> keep on the case. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I always thought our uh, freedoms were ensconced in, uh, in, in a bill of rights. And the government did not have the power to, uh, to uh, an incumbent government didn't have the power to, to change those rights. So with respect to your balances, there must be a clear line where the government has uh, uh, more or less gone too far. And uh, you no longer have a free society. It's as simple as that. Yeah, great. I mean, so th th that's, that's the kind of central question we're hovering around, what is a free society? Uh, and in the American context, question of was it constitution was this unconstitutional was the dominating question now britain has the glorious unwritten constitution which i'm a firm believer in uh, but precisely doesn't give the, uh, the possibility of having that argument and i'm afraid i don't i don't actually i'm so ignorant uh, have you you followed us great not yet, L not yet. <laughs> long may your unwritten constitution remain but that makes it very difficult to make the constitutional uh, an appeal to a constitutional based argument and if I may just may add as well, most of these bills of rights, I mean, this is part of the problem. I mean, this was a Burkean, and in fact, uh, uh, Jeremy Bentham made the response to the French Revolution. The problem with bills of rights is they're inherently, they're aspirational and they're unworked out in the details. So they're always prone to uh, the building up of a body of case law. Um, and um, uh, it's, the, it's the case law that really says whether, whether something's been done in, in right or wrong terms. And that's when new technologies become so... Um, complex because they just raise these new questions. Right. So, I, well, I mean, there are clear examples of unfree societies, but then there are these very difficult boundary and boundary cases. And my sense is that this is one of the boundary cases. So, plenty of people I respect come down on the other view on this. So, the warden of um, the college that I'm a member of in in Oxford is the former director of public prosecution. So, he did a lot of public prosecutions for terrorist cases and he just he just thinks this is an appropriate proportional power most this is why it's very difficult to get people excited about it because it's um you don't feel it it just sort of it just kind of happens in the background but we never sort of see that it's not like you have to carry an identity card uh it's not like we feel the kind of cold sweaty hand of the of the stasi on our you know down our shot like this hasn't changed what it feels like to live in free societies but yet, it seems to me to be crossing a crucial boundary. Uh, when we had the mention of uh, tax crime, I couldn't help but think that perhaps Amazon will be hoisted by its own petard, uh, which would actually be uh, a nice finish to the whole argument. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the comment you made earlier about um, torture, mm. and you spoke about mass incarceration, uh, I'm just very interested in where the boundaries might be, because clearly, all of us would like to have a lot of liberties that we don't have because there is this trade-off we've just spoken about with terrorism. And so I'm really interested in this idea of where you see that boundary. And you raised that question about 
you know, the trade-off with lives. Yeah, good. So, um, so I, I suppose the appeal to you know what I've been calling a, um, a kind of conservative way of thinking in terms of uh, you know this Birkin idea um, just gives us a, a kind of a, a standalone reason to take very seriously the lessons from the past. Um, so, one of the conflicts that is very salient in the British context is Northern Ireland and the counterinsurgency there. And the government did make the decision to imprison people without trial. And I th I think it's pretty widely acknowledged that that was a counterproductive move in that context now. And you'll find that within a lot of uniformed people as well. And I, I just think that lesson from past experience is just worth, hold it's worth holding on to. And um, uh, if I'm... This is also, I think, one of the really important reasons why you have um, older, experienced people in government who've come through security uh, backgrounds, because it will tend to be soldiers and those with security backgrounds who are keenly aware of the limits of force. Um, and... You know, there is there's an opposite danger, which is to think that force is never appropriate and never useful, and uh, obviously I don't sign up to that. Um, but there is also, so I think we saw this in 2003 um, in the UK context, young leader, um, and it's very intoxicating if you haven't seen the limitations yourself to press the button and, and uh, get the hard power going. Um, and without thinking clearly about what the, what the limits are. And so I think in... Here we're dealing with a more fine-grained sort of edge of policing, edge of security, kind of counterinsurgency, or like this complex grey area of different kinds of force. And I just think it's worth really holding on to lessons that we've that we've learned from the past. Hello. <coughs> Hello. Hi. Um, nowadays, amongst the younger generation, more and more people are willingly putting out. Uh, information about themselves and social media, and that's simply the norm. Um, how effective can legislation against uh, information companies like Facebook and other social medias be if people are willingly doing this? Um, we, for example, in 1984, we read that, that uh, you know, TV is in everyone's houses, and that seems very dystopian, but um, it seems like it's here, and uh, we're willingly doing it. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, so... Um, firstly, I think law has a very powerful signaling effect. As, sorry, let, let me back up to try and order it. Firstly, the, the claim is often made that the younger generation is doing this. I think as well the younger generation is also much more privacy aware than... Um, I am. I mean, I'm. We're all. We're all on a journey. You know, we're all. Uh, we're all learning to be a bit more sensible about what we put online and what we don't put online, and trying to guard the boundaries between, you know, when people are taking photos and stuff. And um, so, I think there's a there's a more nuanced appreciation. But I do take the point. There's domains of life which previously would have been viewed as quite personal and private, and you don't want the whole world to know, which people are happily putting out their, their Friday night photos sort of stuff. Um, 
Secondly, I think law does have this powerful expressive effect that it has a way of signalling and therefore shaping within society what the norms are that are appropriate. And I think there are, um, you know, it would be illiberal for laws to be passed which say don't share all your information online. I mean, so I don't think we're, we're going to go there. But I think that there are ways that law can be framed which supports a kind of moral ecology where there isn't pressure and expectation to share too much. Um, and so one example would be the right to be forgotten in the European context, where that is something which the legislators and regulators have to, had to push quite hard to get Google actually to implement, and Google were fiercely resistant. Um, but it seems to me an important step um, to allow people to have a kind of digital rewrite, you know, press the press the control alt delete as it were. Um, yeah, sorry. That, that I have. Hi, Tom. Thank you very much to unpack this very contested topic. Yeah, my question is: I guess uh, the balance between the the, the governments are protecting our safety or security versus individual liberty. It depends on what philosophical standpoint you are at. I'm quite familiar with the libertarians' view. How about conservatism? Because you mentioned about conservatism. What are they sitting at? Which kind of a spectrum? And another question is, it might be a false challenging, because you use the term natural uh, monopolies. I'm not quite so sure about it as I, not, probably not really have evidence I heard somewhere, probably anecdotally, like those search engines are really subsidized by U US government. And then they had this, uh, this lobbying power. That's how they started to develop this uh, monopoly. So the government regulation will encroaching the free market uh, uh, competition. Thank you very much. Okay. Great, so j just very swiftly. Um, I haven't, uh, if, if I was speaking to philosophers, I'd be in my comfort zone and, uh, and I'd give, you know, the libertarian theory says this. And actually, interestingly, in Amer the American context, it was the libertarian right within the Republican Party who were quickest out of the gates on the Snowden revelations um, because they have a, quite a deep, instinctive dis distrust of government desire for small government. And um, the British context is just uh, sort of more muddly and more confused, and we don't really have a libertarian right which is articulate in the same way. So, so the conservative as a description of a political grouping um, more naturally aligns, kind of identifies folk who've, who've got a kind of emotional resonance with uh, strong government and the need for, uh, for order, kind of, you know, like a Thomas Hobbes worry the anarchy is the dot is kind of the the first concern of government is to make sure that we don't descend into the state of nature. That I think that's quite distinctive to the right, and um, and makes people predisposed, as I sort of instinctively am, to the acceptability of security measures. But I've been trying to articulate why within this kind of broader body of thought, there, and I hope it's appealing across the spectrum, there might be reasons to resist this particular policy measure. Okay, on natural monopolies, my suspicion is what you've heard is that the, um, uh, I mean, the start of the internet was originally the, the DARPAnet, and it was DARPA, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency for the Pentagon, which funded the internet, and it did so because it wanted to have what's called survivable communications in the event of a nuclear assault, a nuclear attack. 
Um, so the you know the internet, which a lot of the early tech pioneers had a, had a deep kind of uh, anarcho-libertarian vision within them, r did so on the back of government funding. Uh, I'm not aware that Google ever received government funding, but I, I'm, I'm open to be corrected. But I think what is a worry is uh, there's some interesting data on, um, particularly with the Obama White House, the revolving door between previous Google employees and the White House and, and vice versa. And that regulatory capture does undermine the basis of uh, market competition. Uh, th thanks very much for describing the, the spectrum and the need for norms because otherwise the end justifies the means. I think one of the problems today is definitional. It might be fine if we've got a decent government, but where do you define terrorism? And so a number of governments around the world define their, the people they don't like as yep. terrorists. Look at Russia, look at China. Um, look also at what's happening in Burma at the moment with the, you know, the way of getting rid of, of these Rohingya or whatever is just to burn them and drive them all into Bangladesh. Um, and that gets rid of your Rohingya terrorists. It might. Didn't work for the Kurds, so maybe it won't work for them either. Yeah. Good. So, uh, so th this, um, I've heard this sort of line of thought quite a lot in this debate. And, um, you know, the thought is, we, we, even though right now we trust the government, who knows what we'll be like in 10 years' time, and maybe fascism is just around the corner. And um, I, uh, I am I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, obviously, we don't want to pass laws that empower fascist governments. And, uh, but I'm also hesitant because I basically have, a, I have a, probably a lower view of the, um, the power of the legal system to resist what you might call the ethos of an age. So it seems to me that law is, is just a very plastic entity and law very quickly comes to reflect, uh, so I use this in the Burkean sense, the prejudices of an age. And that, by that I mean the kind of the, inst the instincts, the automatic assumptions of an age. And a bill of, I mean, and you see this in the American context, uh, the power for the Supreme, I mean the Supreme Court is not in the business of interpreting what the original constitution meant. The Supreme Court is in the business of legislating it's the preferences of the, the nine justices. And um, so, so I have a, and I think things are more accentuated in that direction. So I think the, I think the, f the first order issue is the principle and, and it's in defending that that we, uh, that we then have reason to worry about the second order question um, of constra constraining. I mean, it's a principle of parliamentary sovereignty that we can't constrain fu future parliaments and um, I think that's right. Thanks, Greg, and thank you, Tom. Um, there are those who say that a country uh, serious about its self-preservation must detect potential threats and prevent attacks before they occur, not prosecute them as crimes after the fact. That is, that the safety of citizens is the first and primary objective of government all true. But there are many advocates of reducing the size and the scope of government, embracing smaller government, and we at the CIS proudly and firmly put ourselves in that camp. We recognise that mass surveillance raises all sorts of interesting and complicated questions. <clears throat> are governments striking the right balance between tranquility and liberty? Is there a trade-off between security 
and freedom. But in the case of surveillance, is this trade-off small? And as some of the excellent questions here tonight make clear, can liberty exist absent the basic conditions of security? Does the security advanced by surveillance enhance liberty? Are the two values mutually dependent? Now, these are very complicated issues, but they go to the heart of a genuinely liberal society in an age of terror. And we give thanks and praise to Tom for deftly weighing into these issues this evening. Uh, Tom mentioned Samuel Huntington, the distinguished Harvard scholar, best known for his thesis on the clash of civilizations in the mid-1990s. But as Tom pointed out, one of Huntington's most prominent earlier theses was on conservatism. And as it happened, it was published 60 years ago, 1957. I think Huntington was only in his late 20s, early 30s. And it was entitled Conservatism as an Ideology. And Huntington's argument was that conservatism properly understood is essentially anti-doctrinaire, uh, that tr for true conservatives, the best test of their conservatism is their attitude towards change. And that conservatives, for Huntington, in very much the genre of Ed Edmund Burke, um, they're wary of change and positively hostile to sudden, radical, disruptive change, conscious that it can lead to loss as well as gain and is fraught with the danger of unintended consequences. So all of this is a roundabout way of saying that even among liberals and conservatives, there's a great debate, even among themselves, about the true role of the government when it comes to the security of individuals. And I think we'll treat it here tonight to a wonderful uh, survey of those two competing trends within both schools of thought. Uh, Tom, as Greg mentioned, uh, is from Oxford University. He's been lecturing philosophy there for the last four years. He's also a fixture on Radio BBC in London. Um, he uh, only arrived this morning. Uh, it reminded me of someone last night I saw on Q&A, the ABC's Q&A show, uh, Brett Stevens from the New York Times. He arrived yesterday morning, and anyone who can fly all the way halfway around the world to Sydney... Uh, for their first times and then do a Q&A and then perform here at the Centre for Independent Studies. It's a remarkable feat, so thank you very much, Tom. Um, and thank you all, too. Uh, we've always believed at the CIS that, that the mark of a truly intellectually stimulating night is not just the quality of the speaker, but also the quality of the questions. And I think it's fair to say that all the questions that were raised tonight were really first-rate. So thank you so much, and we hope to see you again. Thank you.